Good afternoon, everybody. Hi there. I think it's uh, exactly half past four, so it's time to get going. And thanks very much to all of you for taking the time and uh, coming along to the first sessional meeting hosted by uh, what is the Market Conduct Committee, it used to be the Treating Customers Fairly Committee until a couple of years ago, or just, just under two years ago. Uh, we've got three members of the committee here today. It's myself, uh, Tamar, and Peter. Uh, we'll be taking part at various stages during, during the presentation. Uh, the, the agenda for this afternoon, we thought, first of all, we'd talk a bit about ourselves, the committee, the background to it, why we're here, what our, our remit is, take you through a summary of the terms of reference for the committee and our objectives and, and the scope, um, and then just tie that in quickly to I mean, why, why, why that would matter for actuaries, why, why the profession would be interested to have, have a committee such as this. Then really the meat of the presentation, we thought that having uh, discussed what market conduct is and, and why the uh, society felt the need to put this committee together, uh, we then look at some examples of market conduct issues uh, that we have discussed and that uh, I think uh, when you see the issues that we raise, I'm sure they're things that quite a lot of you will have uh, come across over the years. And what we'd like to do with that is uh, maybe have a bit of a panel discussion uh, with some questions, but, but really our preference, our strong preference would be uh, to get input from, from you guys who've come along, uh, because uh, I think that'll uh, help help us certainly to hear what people in the profession are saying, um, but I think also the diversity of opinion that we'll get will, will hopefully add a lot to the, the quality of the debate. So if you are going to speak at any stage, uh, we have roving microphones, the session is being recorded, so if you want to ask a question, I'm going to have to ask you please to wait to have a microphone and uh, then your uh, words, whatever you're saying, will be recorded for posterity there. That's not to scare you away. Uh, just to let you know that we do need the mics to be out there if we do have any questions or discussion. So moving in, if we just look at the scope of the committee, it's fairly straightforward, is to look at matters relating to market conduct, but obviously in the context of members of ASSA, so that's fairly straightforward. So when you get together and you start looking at something uh, like this, the obvious question to come up with is, well, what then is market conduct, how would that, that arise and where would it fit? So we did some research and we came up with a definition and this is the definition we came up with. And I think the key points here, um, this is about, there's some important words on that slide, so it's about entities, which I suppose is a code word for the, the companies that we work for. And it's the behavior of those companies in some, just a few key areas all to do with product, and it's to do with the design, the pricing, and the distribution of products. So a market conduct issue would be, for example, um, the, if you want to look at the promotion strategy for a product, you know, if you bundle a product into another product, um, then, then you, you would be, that would be a promotion strategy that you would be adopting. Credit Life would be a good example of that. <clears throat> we'll be talking a bit more about that or maybe a lot more about that later on. Um, but if, for example, you uh, sold credit uh, credit in, in a way that it was implied that without buying insurance you wouldn't get the credit, then you can see a promotion strategy there which, which would be a, 
a behavior of the entity that was was doing that. So design issues, pricing issues, and promotion strategy issues. This links back to treating customers fairly. I mean, this committee was started some years ago as the Treating Customers Fairly Committee. I think that was back when the uh, the FSB was getting going on the Treating Customers Fairly track. I mean, we know TCF was always an FSB initiative um, from, from the early days. ASA saw the need to put a body together to oversee the interaction of the TCF principles with the profession. I think market conduct itself is a broader remit and that's where we came from. That's why we, we, we've now been re reformed. Reformed? Reshaped. Um, uh, the, the six TCF principles, though, I think still underpin a lot of the, the work of the committee and, and are important for the profession. So we thought we'd quickly put those up and just run through them again. I mean, I'm sure I should have said one by one, shout them out. Let's see who knows these. That would have been an interesting test. But yeah, TCF principles deal with as you can see these things here, the culture of the companies that we work for. You're supposed to have a culture of treating customers fairly within your, your businesses. The target market for your products is supposed to be appropriate. So selling 25-year annuities or sorry, 25-year endowments in an old age home would be a good example of not quite meeting that. Um, if there's things that your customers need to know during any part of the currency of the product, so whether it's at the purchase stage, the claim stage, or any point in between, you're supposed to be uh, communicating with them about what they need to know. <clears throat> Advice should obviously be suitable uh, for customers, and I, I guess, you know, I do a lot of work pre presenting, making presentations to members of the public or members of, of pension funds and so on. And uh, I must say, this is one of the biggest bugbears that seems to come up a lot if we're listening to, to what the public is telling us. So whenever you talk about the getting or giving of good advice, you always get a good laugh when you say, get yourself a, a, a trustworthy financial planner. And uh, people have got a great uh, and very healthy skepticism for the quality of the advice they're getting out there. But the TCF principle turns that around and puts the responsibility back on on the firms, on the companies that we work for and play such an important role in. Obviously, the promises made during the selling process and inherent in the product have got to be delivered or should be delivered in line with whatever the customer would have expected from that process. And then the no unreasonable post-sale barriers just refers to uh, the rights that, that people would have at any point during the operation of a product to make new decisions, such as stopping the product, changing it, adding to it, whatever. So post-sale barriers come out there. So those were the, the TCF principles. And I think if you think back to the definition of market conduct, you know, the design, the pricing, uh, the promotion of products, you can see these are all very, very much tied up in here and, and all talking to the same thing, really. Uh, the committee in, in being formed, part of the terms of reference of the committee is that we, we will draw... Uh, members from all practice areas and I think we've pretty much done that. It's quite a big committee for that reason. I mean we all know that the practice areas that actuaries work in have, have uh, grown over the years. I think the one gap at the moment is an, an someone from the investment side but if actually contact has been made with us by the investment committee and we're looking to, to put that right uh, pretty soon. So, so the idea here is that the uh, by having 
every you know somebody from each practice area of course then as issues are raised uh, we hope to be able to home in on and get action uh, get action in that area the objectives of the committee i've just got a few slides on that and i apologize in advance for these slides i hate slides like this it's just a cut and paste it's a verbatim what the terms of reference said but we we couldn't really find a better way of, of doing it so uh, this is what it is so supporting the development and thought leadership of the the profession in the context of market conduct um, and and the means for doing that really is the the development either of formal you know protocols through the sap or apn uh, structures or preparing and presenting cpd events and today is the first such one that we've done of those and um, of course this is a professionalism uh, cpd event so we can all claim those of you still claiming ours I uh, can hopefully get a, a healthy hour and a half a jump start to your, your year. We want to contribute or we're expected to contribute to the strategic direction of the society uh, with regard to market conduct and support the brand of the, the profession. I think that's very important. Also to support the regulatory authorities. So um, obviously we're trying to, or we'd like to have influence over, be able to comment on and give input uh, to, to the regulatory authorities. And in fact, in this regard, the committee has a, a seat on a body called the Market Conduct Regulatory Framework Steering Committee. It's a bit of a mouthful, but that's a body that sits and meets in the offices of the FSB once a quarter. And it's an amalgamation or coming together of a, a vast array of industry bodies, regulatory bodies, uh, lobby groups, whatever. Uh, but through that, we're, we're getting up to speed with what's going on in the regulatory environment and have the opportunity, therefore, to make input to what's going on there and comment on what's happening. Whether they listen to what we say is another question, of course. The key responsibilities, now you'll see flow from the objectives, so there's a kind of a big overlap here. Obviously, we're trying to monitor developments uh, from the perspective of the profession. And this, this links directly back then to having all the practice areas represented uh, on the committee because then uh, we hope that whatever we identify or is passed through to us we'll be able to deal with. Uh, obviously developing and, and reviewing and adapting SAPs and APNs and then uh, a couple of very important interactions, one with the practice area committees themselves and the other with the professional matters board where appropriate. Um, so part of the committee's output is then to talk to the other key areas within within the professional body identifying CPD needs and opportunities, obviously. And then critically, sorry, <clears throat> critically, I think the risks to the profession. Um, if we see something that we think is a threat to the profession or a big risk for the profession, we need to talk to council and, and then try and help them uh, develop strategies to deal with those. If needs be, uh, making input to public policy submissions uh, talking to council generally on market conduct issues and supporting and making recommendations to the, the regulatory authorities. So you can see these all tie in with um, the, the objectives and you can see the, the thread running through there, hopefully. Communicating on a regular basis with members, and that, that will do in various ways, which we, we're still talking about doing. Then something we haven't really spent much time on yet is, is forging links with the international body or bodies and seeing how we can interact with them and hopefully learn, learn from them what's going on in other parts of the world, how they're tackling problems, regulatory issues, and so on. 
and then the other way around making input backwards into into those bodies so if i might say i, I think you know, we've had people talk to us we, we get input from members and we've had input from members already and the committee members coming through but if i had to kind of like try and just encapsulate this this thing the market conduct committee um, I, had to, I had to get my mind around this at the beginning too was that the, the society already has in place structures for dealing with problems when they come through so we, we have a code of conduct um, regulating our behavior and our conduct and giving uh, anyone out there whether it's within the profession or the public the means to complain and pursue a, a complaint against somebody in the profession or the profession generally uh, we have the professional matters board dealing specifically with matters um, at, shall we say the the hard end of, of professionalism and ultimately you've got the disciplinary structures underpinning all that too so so where would our committee fit in and I think that the way to think about it is that the work of this committee is to try and act in a way, interact with members, stimulate thought, uh, get get conversations going that would lead to conduct and behavior in the entities that we work for and then us as individuals within there that would stop anything ever getting to the other end, if I can put it that way. So this isn't about, and, and I might say that's a bit of a misnomer that we've come across in the discussions we've had and in fact, before the very meeting today, somebody said, I've got some bones to pick with you. I've been unfairly treated. Um, that's not what we're about. We want to hear that. But the, the remit of our committee is then to try and think, how could we stop that happening again? Not how will we deal with an offender or something going wrong um, at the moment? That, that's the other structures would, would deal with that. So that, that's really the, the, the remit of the committee and, 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 and how we see ourselves positioned out there. Why would that matter to us is, well, I think it's quite clear. And if you haven't, well, you all know that already, I'm sure. But within the companies that we work for, I mean, we wield a huge amount of, of weight and power and authority as a profession and have huge influence over the issues that, that, that drive market conduct issues. If you think about it, I mean, it's just an endless list, but some examples there of where, um, whether you're directly involved or not in, for example, design or pricing or marketing of a product, very, very often it's members of the profession uh, through positions either as sort of on the more junior level actually doing the work around that, or on a more senior level as management or senior executives overseeing this conduct. We tend to know what's going on. Uh, we tend to have a lot of influence over what is going on. And I think that's, that, that's really the point of this, um, that we have to take the responsibility and the power that we wield very, very seriously because when we get into the case studies, we might see that a lot of things, when they do go wrong, could perhaps be traced back to either conduct or, or perhaps a lack of, lack of input or a lack of influence um, or perhaps people battling to reconcile people within the profession, battling to reconcile the, the apparent conflict between their professional body responsibilities, the duty they owe to the profession, and, and their, the obligations they owe to their employer. And I think this is a perpetual debate and, 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 and something that a lot of us grapple with all the time. But if you've got power and influence, you have to wield it appropriately and, uh, 
Winthrop Williams Aldrich, if you ever get a moment, look him up. Um, interesting character. He was a, an American, uh, banker and financier uh, who operated sort of in the first half of the last century and slightly into the second half. And he very well, a very wealthy man and very well connected with all the right people. And, um, uh, it's interesting to think that a banker, an American banker would have said something like that. Because if he had lived <laughs> a little bit longer, and seen the havoc and, and the devastation that was wreaked by by the banking profession on the world at a later stage, uh, then he would have been horrified, I hope, uh, if he if he meant what he said here. If you look him up on Wikipedia, there's a lovely photograph of him uh, in 1957, when he, he was already in his 70s, and uh, but he, he's talking to Marilyn Monroe, uh, the, the beautiful actress. Uh, all I can say is uh, he's he, he's not staring into her eyes. In, in, in that photograph, so he uh, he had a strong moral compass, it would seem. But uh, he was he was a human as well. Anyhow, that's uh, an aside. So, having said that, that's really the background to the committee. That's where we come from. That's what we do. And um, before we get into case studies, can I stop at that moment and say, are there any questions, observations, comments? Uh, hopefully, no rants uh, that anybody might have. Yeah, there it's Arthur's. Ms. Neil, just uh, your very definition says market conduct relates to the entity relating to pricing, etc. What what sort of power have you got? Well, let me put it like this: Should your committee not really look at the individuals who can influence the entity? So it's the market conduct. It should be the conduct of individuals, not the conduct of the entity. Is that right? Yeah. So so the definition of market conduct is a general definition. And at the end of the day, it is a product of the entity. It, 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 it's the, the business, the insurance company, the asset manager, whatever, who is designing and selling the product. And that was the whole point. But why does it matter to the profession is because we as individuals work in those entities and can, in my opinion, hugely affect the way the entity's products uh, present themselves in, in the market. Is that, yeah. Any other comments? Questions? Okay, good. We're all still awake. Yeah? And no cell phones have gone off yet. You're very well behaved. With that, then, we're going to move on to our first case study. And uh, we chose uh, for this uh, Credit Life. Um, I'll just comment before we start that I've been involved in the society in many guises um, over quite a few years. And this is a hoary old chestnut that uh, I think has been discussed many times within the profession. Uh, we have on our committee somebody who's very well versed on this, and that's Tamar. And she put together a really uh, very well set out case study on credit life. So what I'm going to do is ask uh, Tamar to come up and uh, talk through the slides. And then at various stages, she's going to stop and ask some questions. And then Peter and I as the panel will get an opportunity to talk if, if needs be. Um, but I hope that at the time when the questions come up, you know, we can get a good good discussion going. And then I, I don't think in any of these there's a, a real answer, a right or wrong answer, but Tamara's been good enough to put together some thoughts on some possible answers. So I'm going to hand over to her now. Thanks. Thanks, Neil. Um, I, I should maybe just clarify that my expertness in this credit life question is, is I've, I've actually only been working in this for... What, about a year and four months now, but it did happen to be over the time when the national credit regulations had to be implemented. So I did, I do, I, 
I became a bit of a, a new expert, I suppose. <laughs> so I think, I mean, as, as Neil says, this is, is something that's been, been around for, for quite some time and not just in South Africa. I think we, we all know the same PPI story that happened in the UK and, uh, so it's it's probably something that we're all well aware of. I, I have to mention because uh, I think this is great. The first meeting that I attended, the market conduct, very, like I think it's the second, third agenda item, is crocodiles. And um, I didn't know what a crocodile was, so I said, "What is a crocodile?" And Neil explained to me, "Well, crocodiles lurk just below the surface, and when you least expect it, they leap out and, and bite you." Um, so I thought that was really cool. And, and this is a crocodile, I think, that, as Neil says, is lurking so long that we kind of forgot about it and just assumed it was a log. Um, and, <laughs> and the result we'll go through in a second. But, but I think that's, that's maybe also just something to bear in mind is that just because something's been a problem for a long time doesn't make it not a problem anymore. So the bad name that's been attached to credit life insurance and PPI, actually, is, is three main things was the overcharging that it was found that you know, premiums were probably too high for the cover that was was given. The selling practices that uh, Neil alluded to a little earlier, the fact that oftentimes people assume that in order to get the credit or this thing that they want, and, and often it was so, that they had no choice but to take this insurance product, that if they wanted, you know, the couch, then this thing had to go with it. Um, and in many instances, what they found was benefits that couldn't even be claimed. Um, which obviously is problematic. You shouldn't have to pay for something that you would never, ever enjoy. So I think the the result of this, because we left this this crocodile log, um, was that legislation was then introduced. This was something that we saw in the press for a very long time as well. Um, I think it was something that the, you could see that the regulators were getting very um, antsy about. Um, and probably because nothing substantial seemed to happen, the result was was legislation that was introduced, um, and and I think that's that's a, it's a key learning in all of this because I think the the legislation itself is is less than ideal, um, and I think we, as Neil said, are probably best placed to actually know what what is going on in the industry, and actually what is best for the consumer, um, and and that is a an awesome position of power. So the legislation that came out um, was effective 9th of August 2017, which is kind of a random date, also Women's Day, but I'm not sure there's any correlation. Um, and basically what they did was they've prescribed certain minimum benefits if your credit life is compulsory. So if when you make credit available, you say, well, you have to have insurance to back this credit, then these, these regulations apply. So the regulations then prescribe what benefits have to be included, and it's an array of benefits. It's quite a comprehensive benefit suite. So it's life cover, it's disability, both temporary and permanent, um, and retrenchment benefits. <coughs> they've also then put premium caps on these. So they've, they've prescribed the amount that you can charge, for, the maximum amount that you can charge for all of these benefits, and also put um, benefit design constraints, basically saying that um, if you are self-employed, then... You can't be offered occupational disability. We, we can't charge for occupational disability, only this other disability that they've actually defined. Um, and also, if you are um, retired, well, actually not if you're retired, if you're self-employed, you, you can't charge for retrenchment cover. <coughs> um, they have also put in some policy substitution provisions, basically saying that um, 
the customer can select insurance from another provider, um, but that insurance then needs to comply with all of these regulations because you as the credit provider made that credit life compulsory. Um, and then the onus is actually on the credit provider to make sure that this substitute policy complies with these regulations. Ah, so here's the question that Neil was alluding to. Um, so the first question is, what are the unintended consequences of this, or the possible negative outcomes to consumers? Okay, so I think um, for me, if I can sit down, I'm supposed to be on a panel. So I'm I guess, yeah, I always, I, I'm greatly skeptical about regulation in any any way, shape, or form because my observation is that that regulation uh, usually leads to the opposite outcome of what it's trying to achieve. You know, often, I mean, it often does. Um, so, just an example there in what Tamar had up, um, the idea that there was a cap on the premiums. Now, it seems to me that if if you're limited in what you can charge, then if there's any element of risk in credit life, um, the cost of which would be in, in excess of, of the maximum cap, then I'm guessing that what you would do is just not sell cover to those people because the risk would just be you know, uh, too great for the premium that you could collect. So a well-intentioned piece of, and I'm sure legislation is all well-intentioned, uh, but it's something trying to make things fairer for the customer and, and make the customer outcomes better, um, I think something like a premium cap to me is is potentially a, a problem because um, you might then exclude people from cover from even being offered cover who otherwise would have liked cover and would have enjoyed cover. So that, that that's one example of where I think an unintended consequence could come along. Then, yeah, then the, uh, another un unintended con consequence, because you've, you've imposed um, minimum sort of benefits that you have to have for credit policy. In, in some cases, it's pushed pushed up the, the cost of cost of getting a loan. You know, in, in the past, maybe if you just had life cover, then then the cost would be a lot lower. Now, now you've imposed these additional benefits, and so it's 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 pushed up the the, the cost of, of of borrowing for and, and and in a lot of cases for people at the low end of the market. So it's it's, it's prejudiced them. So it's, again, it's another unintended consequence. I don't, don't think they intended to to, to impact the, the, that section of the market, but that's that's what that's what it happened. People have ended up being forced to have benefits which which probably they they, they couldn't couldn't afford. Um, and that's that's another intended con, con, unintended consequence. Thank you. Oh, is it on? Um, so I think some of the things that we've seen is that firstly, some of the banks have actually removed what would have previously required compulsory cover, and now those products don't require cover at all. And in some situations, um, people obviously do need a cover. So there's also been a lot of instances in the media where I think it was Ned Bank um, had taken away someone's house because the loan holder had died. Um, so there's obviously a lot of situations in when, where cover is compulsory, and now in particular on mortgages, some of the compulsory cover has now been removed. So that's an unintended consequence. Um, and then with regard to what you said about imposing the cap and then the risk is higher than that, there's then also a situation where you don't want to say to people that we can't, because you can't differentiate the customers. 
So you can't say that, well, if you're under this age, we are willing to offer you credit life insurance, but if you're over this age, you're not. So then the people, um, then you obviously introduce some kind of cross-subsidy and make it unaffordable for, for some other people. Yeah, you've got to be careful. I think uh, this is a very gray area. And, and what's interesting, everyone has an opinion on this, so please don't crucify me on this. I think what, what I'll first start with the positive. I think before it was regulated, credit life was almost incomparable between providers. Everyone had a little twist and tail. So the one plus that you have is it's commoditized. So from a phase point of view, giving advice in terms of substitution, that entire risk is eliminated for the selling party. So I think it, it creates opportunity for mass production and it's about scale. So it's, it's able to produce a commoditized product to a customer at massive scale and efficiency, which I think was not there before. The downside to that is automatically competition is removed. So as soon as you commoditize it, the ability to compete on something else is taken away. You only compete on service. So I found that the biggest losers in this, and maybe that was intentional, is the bespoke offerings. So you want to do it in a rural area, custom homemade language, not via the web. That entire service offering is gone, not because they don't want to offer it, but the expense component that they can afford at that low-end scale makes it unaffordable, just by virtue of the premium cap. And as I say, you have different views on it. Maybe that's exactly the intention. I'm sure that there are some consumers that wanted that. The point is that part of the market is out. But I think there's, with most things in life, a plus and a minus. Uh, my observation is you, unless you operate at scale, it is impossible to recoup your expense component on lower end loans. That's the, that's the reality of it. Yeah, actually, I think that's exactly it. I think there's there's definitely been some positives from it. I mean, there were some some ridiculous practices happening, and I have no relation to the Lewises who were doing terribly bad things with their furniture company. Um, <laughs> not me, um, but yes. So I think there definitely have been some positives from it. I think it was it was something that had to happen because, as you say, it's also part of the market that is the lower end of the market and and probably needs more protection than than any other. Um, I think just to kind of go through some of the stuff that we saw, which I think we've already addressed now, is, um, as you say, one of the consequences, which is positive, is no more overpricing, hopefully. Um, yeah, so the fact that cover may not be made available, um, and some consumer groups may actually be worse off. And the, the reason for that is in, in that self-employed space, where they've now defined so clearly that, that disability definition, it, it, a lot of, a lot of, uh, credit providers before were actually quite comfortable offering disability cover to self-employed people, um, and they they could certainly claim for it. Um, they, uh, you know, we offered occupational disability to self-employed people, but now the way that it's written, you actually can't offer occupational disability. That's probably the the best match to the need, though. Is if someone can no longer work, that's actually when they're going to start defaulting on their credit and and need that cover to come in. So so I think that's that's maybe what happens when sort of external people start putting in benefit definitions. Um, yeah, and then the fact that you can still offer retrenchment benefits to pensioners is odd. Um, yeah, I think as, as Neil said, some of the, the fact that the, uh, sorry, as uh, Peter said, the fact that you have to now have comprehensive benefits, 
it may not actually suit everyone. It might be that now the loan plus insurance becomes unaffordable to them. Um, and as you correctly said, I think some people are just not offering insurance at all. Um, well, not making it compulsory. And therefore, people are losing their, their houses. And I think it's even not just on home loans. Obviously, that's a, a big risk because that asset is, is huge. But um, even on some of the smaller things, you know, it's, if some, some families have now suddenly they've, they've got to cover a 10,000 rand loan when, when someone dies, it's, uh, it can actually leave them destitute. I would imagine. I would imagine um, in, in the instance where where, you, where they're not forcing um, people to take a cover, that that the, the the bank would then somehow price for the fact that that the, that debt's not collateralized. So presumably, the, the cost of the borrowing would then go up. Um, that that just seems to make sense. So, so again, it's an unintended consequence that people are now paying more more for borrowing because they have, there's there's no you know, if the person dies, the bank's not not guaranteed to 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 recoup their their capital. Yeah, absolutely. It introduces an additional default risk. Yeah. Okay, there's going to be more questions. So I think, guess that the other question is, what are the red flags and, and learnings from this? So what are the things that actually showed the thing was a crocodile and not a log? I mean, for me, the obvious one is... Um, uh, two, two, uh, two really. I mean, in a, when when a product just gets bad press, the way Credit Life was getting bad press, um, you know, it, it, there's something there's something wrong. I mean, it just and it was it was repeated and it was ongoing. The second thing is, I know from sitting on various bodies in the society over the years, this is not something that we didn't know about. This this was much spoken of, and and I think has been raised as a crocodile in in many other committees and other settings as well. Um, so, you know, to me, one of the, well, a question from this really is what could or should the profession have done differently? And if, if faced with a similar situation again, would we act differently? Or would we just sit back and, and assume it's a log, not a crocodile, and then end up with consumers being subjected to legislation, which seems to be, you know, far, far from the perfect answer there? Um, I don't know the answer to that question, but I think that's what we as a profession should be putting our minds to. That's Arthur Alts again. Uh, Neil and I served on council years ago. You know, and this is one of the issues raised then at that time, the, the price of credit law. The problem was that some of the very senior actuaries were in fact the CEOs of insurance companies and a motive is profit. When profit comes in, it's very difficult for the actuary to say, well, our, our price is too high, we need to reduce it. And so we've, we've known about this 20 years already. So I think it's very difficult for an actuary to tell the, the managing director or the chairman of the board, we're making too much money when there's a market and people are buying the product. I think that was one of the problems. You don't really have, we've, we've got influence, but we don't have power to fight the, the, the capital market system. So we, it's a real problem for us as actuaries. And we do, we do, I think had not been for the legislation, I think we would have probably still carried on, even with your committee. I don't know as much your committee could do to fight uh, the, the, what's it, the capital system. Yeah. 
It's a sobering thought. There must be something, though. <laughs> I think uh, I've also been listening to the conversation over the years. And we very early on identified two of all three of the contributing factors to credit life being what it is. And um, maybe um, our, our interventions should have been to suggest um, removing some of those before yeah. we got to the limit being implemented. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you know, simple rules like cannot have just one provider. Um, pro providing credit life in a, in a certain relationship. So JD Group having only one provider themselves on that panel, um, introducing the um, competition rules, we could have yeah. contributed to that yeah. and suggested the regulations. Um, so I, I think we were a bit powerless in actually saying this regulation is needed. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's that's a that's a really good point, and I think also the point about informing the customer. I mean, we, even if they just knew what else was available, if we made it clearer in the marketing material, maybe said what this thing does, what it doesn't do. I think you're right. Even without necessarily forcing our bosses to cut profits, which I mean, it's difficult. <laughs> yeah, there were probably some things that we could do. Neil, let me, let me throw a spanner in the works. Oh, a very, very contentious <laughs> issue at the moment are asset managers' fees. You look at some of the managers taking 2%, 3%. The fees are vulgarly exorbitant. They really are. And that's a real issue. And the senior actuaries in act asset consulting firms drawing salaries, paying out big bonuses, and it's been questioned. And if you read in the paper, the coronation's bonuses recently have been questioned by Thea, I've got his surname here, Thea, Thea, <laughs> Thea, 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 there's a real crocodile. And uh, when you go to a pension fund and you realize that a 1% increase, 1% fee reduces the end benefit by something like 20%, and we as actuaries are sitting back saying, look at this, that, that is a real crocodile. And it's like credit life. It's going to come back and bite, and there will be legislation. So I'd like to your committee to, well, you know about it, to look into it and what can we do? We need our actuaries to say, listen, a fee, a fee of whatever, half percent or one percent is reasonable and draw a bonus of 10 million and not 100 million. But there's a real crock, and that picks up the point. We know about it, we've known about it, yet we don't really have power to, hopefully your committee does, but that, that is a real issue. Let's discuss the trustee meetings affecting real people, real pensioners. Yeah, so I think to a certain extent we might not have power, but I think there are many instances where we do have, have power, but yet we choose you know, the road of inertia. So again, from my field, if we look at healthcare, the health market inquiry has been ongoing for the better part of two years, and we've got hospital groups slinging mud, at um, medical aids and medical aid singing mud at professionals and so on and so forth, yet the society has not presented one presentation at any of the um, at, of the opportunities that they've had to make representations to the health market inquiry. So again, I think just echoing what Wim was saying, if your committee could look into something similar from a health perspective, because I mean we do run the risk, um, you know, if we don't act. I mean, we love to sit back and complain and say that because of all this regulation, look at the spot of bother we find ourselves in, yet we don't do anything. Right, we've got a health market committee. Um, again, 
Um, I don't know whether they have done anything, but certainly from what I've seen, it, it's, it's been absent at best. Cool. So maybe I can just comment on the, 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 the issue. I think it's also another example of, of where everybody charges the same way. It, 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 it's, it's standard throughout the market for asset managers to charge percentage of assets. And so, and so, so well, everyone's doing it that way and everyone's charging whatever, you know, 50 basis points, 60 basis points. So, so, so we're fine. And then, the, so there's no, there's no, there's no, there's no, nobody coming up with new ideas and say, well, let's do it this way and it's going to, and it's going to add value to the, to the, the consumers. Mm. Oh, so I'd like to build on that. I mean, <clears throat> over the years with the credit life uh, issue, and as Arthur says, yes, I mean, it goes back a long way. And even predating that, I was on another committee where this kept coming up. And, you know, my argument was always, well, what about competition? Where is the effect of competition, which is kind of what you're saying. I mean, where is the uh, someone breaking from the pack um, and, and offering credit life on much more reasonable terms, you know, cheaper, whatever, better for the customer, which you would have thought would then have an entry into the market and maybe, uh, you know, lead, lead to the benefit of competition, which is better terms, better conditions. It's staggering to sit and watch year after year that that that, that just doesn't happen. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say there's something sinister going on. I mean, collusion or anti-competitive practices, but one wonders. I mean, and, and maybe if the terms are set, the asset management fee thing is maybe another example. Maybe there's a, a complacency and a comfort that everybody gets into, comfort zone, uh, with with the amount of money they're making. And, and, and Where's the the effect of of competition coming through? So I, I hear the the requests for the committee to look into these things and see what we can do. I mean, as I said in the introductory slides, there, what this committee can do is, is our aim or our goal is to encourage intervention and action up front. In other words, before the problem hits the need for regulation, or Lord forbid, anybody is ever um, accused of unprofessional conduct. Or anything comes through the disciplinary structures, um, or, or 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 the profession just gets a bad name because you're always you're always standing around near the scene of the accident, or if you want to call it that, but ne never actually doing anything. And I think um, one of the things that the committee has been working on is trying to formulate the substance of what would be a, an APN, an actuarial practice note, just talking to the profession about the responsibilities and duties. But I do think that the the comfortable days of all nodding our heads and saying, well, we know about these things and we know something should happen and whatever, but we're always waiting for someone else to do it. Mm -hmm. I think with the change in the oversight structure and, and just the way the wind is blowing in, in, in the world as far as regulation and, and accountability, um, if we don't act, I think there, there can be great problems for the profession down the track. So we've got to just try and keep working on on everybody on, on to, to do the right thing ahead of time, not wait for the problem, sit and watch it, and then maybe wait, you know, then at the end, who knows um, how badly things could go if, if the regulators really start get, getting involved. Any other comments on that? Any more views? I think also just one observation on, on that is that, like both these examples, I think it's almost that it's a second order effects your point about competition so you want the bank loan or you want the couch we want the fridge and then the credit life 
is after that. So you're not actually shopping for credit life insurance. And, and I think that's maybe where, where there's possibly a bigger risk, where we've got to be a bit more vigilant. Um, because I think maybe there competition isn't working as strongly as it should. Similarly, maybe with the investor, I mean, you look at, so who's performing the best? So it's Coronation or it's Alan Gray or it's Investec, whatever. You put your money with them. You know that everyone's charging fees. So, well, there's the fees. It's almost also a second order. You don't actually go and look for who's got the cheapest fees. Um, and, and maybe those are the things that we need to just also acknowledge are, are the, the bigger risks where, where market is not necessarily perfect. Not that any market's perfect, but South Africa's is the most perfect. <laughs> oh, sorry. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> no, South Africa's is the most perfect. <laughs> sorry, you got to talk into my cold time. But Neil, what are you really saying? Your committee can't do anything? You're powerless? No, uh, because in the asset management industry, there are a whole lot of managers... But the intention is not to bring down fees. The intention is for the smaller manager to get with the bigger managers and make all the money as well. So it's a perverse incentive. So I think anyway it's going to be kept. And, and people are being affected. I mean, pensioners, every single pension is getting less because an asset manager is taking a big chunk. But what are you really saying? Are you saying your committee can't do anything? We just got to sit back like it was with Credit Life? Okay, no, a good question and a philosophical one that's taxed us already <clears throat> as a committee. So, so we, we've, we have discussed the issue of what we can do as a, but not as a committee per se, as a profession. Well, what can the profession do? Uh, we, we have a belief that we cannot as a profession, um, uh, through say the practice area committees interfere with the, the, you know, for example, is not, I mean, could a practice area committee impose pricing constraints on entities or, or in businesses in the industry? We, we believe the answer to that is no, that the practice area committees cannot do that. So there is, in, in that sense, we are powerless. We can't actually go <clears throat> making laws as a profession as to what, because at the end of the day, the actuary is using judgment, the actuaries are certifying financial soundness and all that sort of thing. And it's not for the practice area committees or, or us to, to impose that. I think this is um, the only power we have, Arthur, is to, is shall we say, to, to bring these issues out. Um, you, you've got the Professional Matters Board, which will deal with issues that, that are taken to it. You'll have the disciplinary structure, code of conduct issues, and so on. Where is the conversation taking place within the profession and challenging people to, to, to take actions that they can take, uh, using the power and the influence? And I, I, I'm not sure I agree that actuaries have no power in the businesses they work in. I think they have huge power and huge influence in the businesses they work in as a rule. And, you know, that, that maybe there are exceptions out there. Um, so yeah, and, and, and then so, I mean, will this lead to anything? Can we be successful? I would hope so. I'd hope that uh, that's a, maybe a puritanical hope. Um, but I, I really would hope that by the profession having these discussions, uh, maybe we can, we can see something coming through. Um, I think it would be the intention also to have sessions at the convention when you've got a much bigger audience and a broader um, representation from within the profession and start challenging people directly on these issues and, and using, for example, case studies 
We've got one later. If we get time, we'll see whether we've got time to get through them all. But we have got a, a shocking example of a benefit projection case study um, to show you, which actually simply must have been involved in. And to start bringing that sort of thing out, and I mean, I, I don't know if we get into naming and shaming. Hopefully, we we never we, we don't do that. But it is really to to put um, the profession on the spot through through these kind of discussions. But as for power that we have to actually go and make things different, no, I think that's we 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 don't believe we've got those powers. Uh, the, the one thing as well is, I mean, we were we were discussing one of the meetings. I think it was about um, portfolio selection. Sorry, I'm going completely off the topic. Um, you know, and, and the way that that happens when people choose funds, you know, is that actually, does it work? Are we doing anything remotely right? Um, and we did kind of get to the point in the meeting that, well, we can only deal with things that actually, firstly, affect where actuaries are involved. So that was kind of step one. We can't really start regulating financial advisors. So, so yeah, I think we have to also understand kind of, is it something that affects the actuarial, you know, is it something specific in the actuarial profession that actuaries specifically are involved with? And then, as Neil says, we can do what we can. Cool. So I think we've kind of, I, th I think we, we, we actually touched on all of those things. Um, I, 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 I can go through these if you want me to. Should I go through them? No? Okay since they're here. Um, so I think obviously some red flags are no one should ever be charged for something that they can't claim for. Um, consumers should be given options and information so that they can actually make the correct decisions. Um, I think also that the premium charged is not excessive. So, I mean, interestingly enough, credit life is not always a bad deal. So I did a bit of a, a, a test to, to see what credit life was like. Um, across the market. And, and I found that in some institutions, probably the bigger banks and whatnot, where they were charging rates, it's actually the cheapest non-underwritten cover that you can get. It's better better deal than funeral benefits. Um, it's a better deal than some of these other non-underwritten level life covers. So it's not rubbish. And it certainly serves a very good purpose. So I think it's, it's also maybe the other learning is kind of don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because it is an important product that serves an important need. Um, and it can work very well. Um, customer complaints, that's always a good one. should look out for those. Customer complaints at claim stage. If if the claim ratios are really, really low, that's actually also one to look out for because perhaps then people aren't claiming. Maybe they don't know they have the cover. Or, you know, I mean, that's that's definitely a red flag that someone should look out for. And, I mean, as as Neil said, persistent bad press press is, is always a good... That's probably quite down the line of the red flags that should have been looked at before. Oh, another question. Ah, well, we've already, we already know. Thanks, Arthur. <laughs> cool. I think that's, that's the end of me. Thanks, I? Yeah. Okay, thanks very much, Tamar. It was turned into quite an interesting discussion there. And uh, when you looked at me and said, credit life is not always a bad deal, I mean, I really believed you there. Because you had a, <laughs> an, an earnest and highly convincing look in your voice. You should sell... You get the proposal form out now. I'll sign it at the end. Okay, thanks very much for that. Uh, we're going to move on now to um, then another one. We've got 35 minutes left. And I'm going to ask Peter to lead us through actuarial certification. Okay, so the, the issue here is is that in, in, in a number of cases, um, 
actuaries are, are um, and, and it's in, I think it's in a statutory role. So it's either on, on the life side where, where, where the, the statutory actuary certifies where, 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 where the um, premium rates are, are financially sound, I think before, before the product can be sold. And, and also in, in, in the situation of a, a retirement fund evaluator um, certifies the financial soundness of, of a, set, a set of rules or, or the amendments to the rules. Now, now the, the way I understand it in, um, on, on, on the life side, I think it's a very, it's a very, na- very, very narrow ambit. The, 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 val- the statute actually is, 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 is certifying wh- wh- whether those rules are financially sound. But that, but that, but, but that, 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 that doesn't, he doesn't have to. He or she doesn't have to look at and 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 ask the question TCF questions. Is this product giving value for money? And I think it and it comes back to. I think it, it overlaps with 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 the previous case study. In previous case study, I think statue actually would, would be um, well, well able to certify that a, that that a credit life product was financially sound, but but and 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 then stop there, but but not not have to think of of, of the other issues. Um, you know, is, is is this product offering value? Are, 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 are the are, are the claim the, the, the claim rates very low? Is 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 this product? You know, is 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 it, is it you know, d- delivering value? Is it is it the right target market? So it's, it's, so I think you, so the so the, act, the the statutory actually could could certify financial soundness, but but not have to consider all, all, the, all these other issues. And similarly within within the retirement fund space, when 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 when, when the valuator certifies that 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 a the, the set of rules or, or, or amendments are financially sound. Then they're not they're not required to, to to ask the question. Well, but but is 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 this rule fair? Um, so we've got a, just a, a, um, a, a, a couple of examples where, for instance, and again, come, come back to the life side where where a, a, a product where there's ex- excessive margins or very high very high assumed lapse rates. Now, 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 now it could be that 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 that. The, 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 those lapse rates are correct. That that's the product does la- have a very high high lapse rate. So you do need to you do need to build it into your product. But it but it but it doesn't ask the question. Well, but it, I mean, is it, for instance a fifty percent lapse rate? I mean, is that are, are you are you really offering value for money if if half your people um, leave it within the first year and then you have got to pass the, those expenses on to, on onto the remaining people? I mean, it's a, almost like a bit of a Ponzi scheme, it seems. Um, so then, and then, and then, and then the, the, the other question was really, um, yeah, but in, 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 in the retirement fund space, uh, where the, where the, value, the valuator certifies that, that a rule change where, where all future surplus always goes to employer surplus account. Again, um, that, 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 may, that, that may be appropriate in some circumstances, but, but, but not, not necessarily always. Um, so, so, so really, the, the 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 question we're posing, and and I think as you've probably seen from from the previous case studies, there there are there are there are, there are no right, right answers to these. We, we, but what what we what we're hoping from from the, from these discussions of the case studies is to is is to is, is to to, 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 um, to have a discussion to and and yeah, and, and 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 to to, to, hear, to hear both to hear different sides. So, so really, so really the question the the question um, yeah the question that we're asking here is should 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 um, yeah, should should other stakeholders be be considered? Because I think in, in, to come back to the, the for instance the life example the, there, I think the stakeholder you, that what was considered in the past is is, is the life company. Is 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 the life company going to be, be able to continue if it sells its product? So so we're really asking the question: should should other stakeholders be be, be considered?
Yeah, thanks. I, I'm not a life actuary, luckily, uh, but I'll, I'll definitely venture opinion here. So I, I, just off the cuff, I, I think actuaries are considering them. I think the problem they find themselves in is they have to dispose on a statutory obligation that's clear. It's a prudential requirement, and you must make sure that when you dispose that statutory responsibility that you do not endanger the future soundness of that entity, because in some way that will be unfair to all the existing policyholders. Um, but I'm pretty sure that those actuaries at reaching that level of education and responsibility are quite aware of the playoff where they might have to sign off on um, a premium rate that is quite expensive. Um, I, I also do think that those actuaries often find that it's that expression of judgment is is against the context of massive uncertainty. So if there was perfect data to eliminate all uncertainty, then the judgment call is easy. But I've seen so many times in other fields, and, and even in the non-life where I play a lot, that there's a lot of uncertainty, and often the margin is not just picked out of air to see if excessive profit could be made, but the uncertainty at the point of design or the point of entering the market is so severe that if you underpriced it, that you're endangering the other policyholders and you'd rather venture on the safe side, that line is different for everyone. The problem is not whether your line is right. The problem is, are you picking a line that balances it between everyone? Because even the other people in the organization, non-actuaries, have their own view on the line. And the biggest debates when they actually consider these things are not just with themselves, but with other stakeholders in the company, because I was listening to the other conversations, the reality is the profession does not control the entire industry. We're just one part of this big chain. And often the success is not whether we are just expressing our view, but we're willing and able to convince others of our view in a sensible way or adjust our view to compensate for other views. Um, so I think that is one of the challenges we have as a profession is not dictating, but trying to explain the context of a decision, be open to challenge from all sides, and then jointly decide as part of an organization. I've just found for myself just to take the responsibility if it's not all yours is actually better to try and make that decision in a joint forum where there's more heads around than just deciding on your own. Yeah, that's my 10 cents. Yeah, thank, th 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 thank you for that um, bit of feedback. Is there any, any other comments? Anybody want to contribute to say, the debate? I was going to say, no, actually would charge only 10 cents for that volume of input and that amount of input. Well done. It's like credit life. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> I'm Mike Walker. Um, I'm talking, I want to talk about retirement funds. Um, I think perhaps the question is being asked here because uh, clearly actuaries have to certify that rule amendments are financially sound and normally that's a very straightforward decision. But the question is more, should you be certifying whether rules are fair? And I, I have thought sometimes it might it would be quite nice to have the power to, you know, to say whether they're fair or not. Um, on defined contribution funds that, that exist at the moment, I think you know, they're very simple, so it's not likely to be a problem. Um, on defined benefit funds, of course, it's very different. You know, the question about uh, allocation of surplus. And uh, I think there could be a case for defined benefit funds um, for you know, giving the actuaries the power to do that, to have a look at whether the, the rules are fair. And because it's not simply a question of when an amendment comes up, because when you actually look at the rules, you might, an amendment, you might look at all the rest of the rules and you discover there's lots of other rules there which are very old and just don't make sense or are in inherently unfair. So often an actuary might say you should change this, but it would be quite nice to have the statutory power to say you, you need to change this. Um, 
But uh, I'm not so sure whether it's really necessary to go that far because with, there's a far less defined benefit funds around at the moment. So maybe it's not really worth, worth doing. But I, I would comment that in a, a lot of older defined benefit funds, uh, there were rules which I believe were completely unfair in the way the benefits were designed. And so it would be quite uh, useful for actuaries to be able to pronounce on that. As to whether that's a good thing or not, you know, from a statutory point of view, I'm not sure. Any, any, any further points? Anybody got any further points? <laughs> I'd like to speak up Mike Walker's point. There are just two things I've learned over the years. First one is when I've certified rules, let's say all the surplus goes to the employer. We've got a fund that has that in its rule. It's a defined benefit fund. And uh, the reason for saying that is things go wrong. The employer picks up the entire deficit. The members pay their 7%. So if things go right, why should the members share in the surplus? They get their guaranteed benefits. So I certainly think it is fair, but in the, the appropriate circumstances. But I've learned a lesson. I worked at one of the consultants, and they grant loans to the lower-income people. And I couldn't believe it, 3% per month interest. They were, wow, these guys are ripping, ripping the lower-income people off. Until I got into a group, and it was discussed... And the 3% interest covers the defaulting loans and the people who disappear. And that certainly opened my eyes to say, but hang on, before you criticize somebody, make sure you understand the rationale for it. So I think, and then the final point I want to make is that actuaries have a duty to the public interest. So I think that is in addition to the statutory duty. So if one sees something in a set of rules or premium rates, that's against the public interest. You're obliged to bring that in as well. Thanks, So uh, maybe just one thing. So as part of our credit life work that we did internally, the question was asked to some of the actuaries, would you certify the fairness? And I must tell you, if you think there's two schools of thought on this, there's like 200 of them. But I think as a profession, yes, I'm very worried. Unless we canvas and clearly define what the signing or the certifying of fairness means we are actually opening up the profession to massive massive reputational risk because what i found in this when you when you start to speak to the people at the coalface what you might perceive as fair for the general rule can be proven to be unfair for one person so i haven't seen some products that's fair to all we might speak to it in a in a bland and a nebulous concept but some components of simple cross-subsidy, which is fair in the aggregate, can be proven to be unfair to one person. So I, I, th I think the only way that fairness can be expressed is in a forum where there's more than one professional skill set around there and it's joint decision-making. I must tell you where I'm at as I'm very, f very fearful for actual professions having to certify fairness. Soundness in its own is, has got a specific concept, but fairness speaking to the underlying users with a vast array of differences, my sense is ex exposes us as a profession tremendously. So I had a comment that was quite similar to that, um, but I'm sure many people know that the new, well, the proposed guidance under the Insurance Act actually does require the head of the actual control function to express a view on the fairness of products. And I've heard many actuaries say that that makes them very uncomfortable. 
Um, and similar to what you just said now, that what you're opening yourself up to. So when you when you talk about justifying a margin in the face of uncertainty, we can have a sort of more quantitative discussion about where that comes from and why we think it's reasonable. When you talk about fairness to people, everything obviously becomes a lot more subjective. Um, and so to put someone in that position and then later have to come back to them and say, but you said it was fair, um, I think it's a very unfair position to put all of the actuaries in. And so shame your committee's leaving here with a lot of extra work, but that's probably something for this committee to consider is we need some kind of guidance of if you are forced to be making those decisions, what what are the types of things that should be be being considered? So really, response to what you're saying, so would you say it's easier to, to certify something as being unfair rather than, than saying something is fair? Is that often, often actually talk about you know, saying, saying something is not unreasonable? Is that that? So, it's, so, it's, so in a lot of cases, it's easier to see if something is clearly unfair, but it's it's a lot, I think what you're saying is a lot harder to, to be able to say, well, this is fair. You know, it's, it's a lot, a lot, you've pushed that that bar much much higher. I think uh, conventionally, um, actuaries have been concerned with matters of fairness and uh, commenting on basis in particular analysis of surplus and the like. Yet, if I look at the rigorous process we go through to qualify, um, we encourage to think about all stakeholders. Um, I think in this era of increasing um, thought around governance and ethics and the like, it's important that if we spot other issues um, or flags that these be raised and consideration needs to be given to a section of the report where certain matters could be raised. So for example, if um, one is concerned about say excessively high lapse rates or high asset management fees or other factors, I think these need to be raised and in with the with the Market Conduct Committee uh, playing a role of identifying potential or actual issues and raising these to council, I think that it would be highly responsible of us to raise these issues um, in reports, for example, so that you leave it to boards of trustees to consider further. Later on down the line, um, there could be a, a lower reputational risk so, for example, if one thinks back to the paper written by Rob Rasconi and matters he raised, uh, and that survived in the industry for decades, um, which later came back to bite. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for that. Okay. So, we, um, really, the question that we, we, we've had a discussion already, and and really, it, it comes back to the, the TCF framework. So, we're saying. Um, does does TCF or even even the actual code of conduct code of conduct is it actually constrained to 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 think beyond just the, just the matter of financial soundness even if that's what what the certifying law is in other words is, the 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 mandate of the actuary is 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 it a narrow mandate or or is it a more more wider one I think we've had a good discussion I don't think we've come with any clear answers which which is 
which is which is what we expected. But it's we've had we've had a good discussion, and we we we, yeah, we, we thank you for for your inputs, and we, we we value value each each comment that was made. Oh, thanks for that, Peter. It's actually very interesting listening to the views because I think, um, <clears throat> in a way, like trying to formulate advice and, and giving um, uh, giving positioning to these issues for the profession is is going to be extremely challenging. But you know, just building on you know what what Arthur said earlier, um, th there are there are overriding responsibilities that that fall upon us. So, for example, the in the code of conduct, I think there is reference to the public good or the public interest. So, I actually, should be acting in the public interest. That's in the code of conduct, and a breach of the code of conduct, I think, is de facto unprofessional conduct, and you can have a a complaint laid against you. Um, ditto things that are, are either law or para-law, like TCF, but will become law. And under the new regulatory framework of, of supervision in the country, we'll see um, overarching requirements to uh, towards things like treating customers fairly and so on. So I think the days of actuaries being able to think, well, I mean, Peter's point, I'm being asked to certify, is this financially sound? This is a yes or a no question. And if the answer is, yes, it's sound, I will sign it. Forget that this will collect five times the amount of money that's needed to pay the claims. That is very sound. Uh, the, the life office will, will simply not go out of business at this. So the answer is yes, and I will sign it. But the point is, and I think this is where the guidance or the, the content of an APN has to start getting us talking about this, is that while you are considering that and making that signature, still the public interest is is there and still the TCF and all the, the regulations that, that are there and and the vast number of, of regulations that are coming, um, still they operate. So we cannot look in isolation at what we're doing. We we have to find a way to to bring these all into the into the into consideration. And I'm not saying I know how to do that or it's an easy thing to do, but I'm sort of sensing that the, the leap that we have to make as a profession is to have all of these filters and awarenesses switched on in everything that we're doing. And that's going to create the biggest problem because I think the um, the employers that we work for, as we've said, I mean, they, they're not asking you, is it fair? They're asking, will it sell? Um, and, and, and can we make money from it? And one, one topic that, that taxed us greatly and, and we didn't put it in today, um, but also came up last year, I gave a talk at the Young Members Convention down in Cape Town in June last year trying to encourage the people coming into that. I think at that session, there were some newly qualified actuaries, but there were a lot of student actuaries, and there were people who were considering coming into the profession. So it was a very, um, you know, broad audience. Um, and and they, they started raising issues. And, and the one that came up was the, the question of selling funeral cover to benefit grant recipients. So you've probably all come across that. So people out there getting a couple of hundred rand a month as a child grant or whatever. And then there's people running around with uh, forms signing you up to buy funeral insurance uh, as a debit against your grant. Um, now, these are people who've got no money to begin with and let alone spending money on, I'm sure if there's a claim, it must be uh, very worthwhile uh, to have the benefit. Um, so the, these young members were, were raising that that issue with us and we we've grappled with that as well. And the bottom line is that there is somewhere in that process, there's pricing going on. There is certification of rates and, and products going on. 
there must include distribution strategies and, and that's part of the remit of market conduct. So I don't know what the answer is, but but talking to the profession about their duties and somehow independently of what your whoever's paying you your wants to hear, uh, we have our professional duties too. And how long is it before some sort of catastrophe befalls a profession? If you look at the speed and, and kind of aggression with which the auditing profession is currently under the cosh, I mean, not just here, but around the world. I mean, the, the scandals, I don't think there's any of the big accounting firms that are not embroiled in some or other scandal somewhere, and, and one's picking up that it's diminishing the stock of of the auditing profession. I mean, I'm certainly coming across that. Um, Lord forbid it, it happens to us, and it's up to us to take that action. Which leads on to, uh, nicely, the last uh, case, which hopefully won't take too long to go through, but it'll be interesting to get get reaction from the floor on this. Um, it's to do with benefit projections, and just, I mean, I suppose it would be more dramatic to build this up line by line um, as we go, but let's, uh, we haven't really got time for that, so let's go through. So so this was a, a real example. We've, we've got the, we've got the, the the thing that the insurance company produced, the bit of paper that they produced that was put in front of the, the policyholder. It's a five-year product. It was a savings product, an endowment. Um, the premium in the first year is up there. Final year, that's with 10% escalations. Um, so the total premium that the insurer would have expected to get if the policy had run properly to its course would have been uh, 40,293 rand. In the event, uh, something obviously happened along the road and maybe um, the the insured didn't feel like paying all the premiums or missed an increase or something. They collected 37,877. But the guaranteed maturity value at the outset when the expected premiums are 40,000, the guaranteed maturity value was stated as 30,300. So, you know, you don't need, you don't need to be a genius uh, to understand that keeping the money in a tin in the kitchen would have been a better option than putting the money into the policy if that's the that guarantee is worthless uh, clearly uh, because there's an easier way of of matching that or even exceeding it um, there was inflation uh, uh, projections for the policy value at maturity based on a low inflation scenario which i think was six percent from memory and the high inflation which was ten percent i think um and the low inflation projection was forty one thousand, which you don't have to be too clever to see as a few hundred rand greater than what you were expected to put in. And again, you could probably have done much better than, than that. And even the high inflation projection of 46,300, okay, maybe there might have been some value if you could have achieved that. The actual maturity value that came out after five years, 36,465 rand. So, um, I mean, really a catastrophic failure, I think, in, in all sorts of ways, that, that this product could even, could have been designed, let alone let alone sold. Um, and I'm sure there's many more examples like this out there. We've been looking for case studies and coming across stuff. And uh, yeah, th th this is just an example of what goes on out there. There were costs of about of 5,400 rand. Um, and at the outset of the policy, knowing what the total premiums that were going to be received were going to be, the 40,000, the higher figure, if the policy unfolds the way it should, um, still, the, the stated costs inherent in the policy were some 13.4% of those premiums. So there's a lot of ground to make up over five years in terms of returns to try and extinguish that. In terms of the actual premiums paid, it was 14.2% in the end. And the, the reduction in yield inherent in the um, projections that were given 
uh, was 9.3% uh, if inflation was the low range, which was okay, 4 to 6%, and 10% if inflation was at the higher level. So the impact of the fees on the product is, is very substantial. Now, that was all disclosed. That was all in the paperwork. It was all there in figures on the page. So the questions that, that arise here, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, what chance did the policymaker have of ever getting back more than what they put in? And was there really a feasible chance that they would, they would do well from this? And then a question that is very close that, I mean, I, this worries me greatly. It comes back to the point that I was making earlier about regulation and the impact of regulation and how, how badly things can go wrong. You know, so, so, so if people are getting bad outcomes through policies, the regulators say, well, then let's give policyholders more information. So now the, the, you have to prepare more information. You have to, all the arguments about how projections will be done, how the figures will be presented, all the caveats that will go into that, all the new staff you have to get and the systems you have to put in to prepare all this stuff, and then it all goes out there. Um, does it actually help? Do, do disclosures actually help the people um, who are buying the products? Um, therefore, was the regulation worth it? It's a pity. I don't know if we've got anybody from the FSB here today. Um, on our committee, we've got representation from the FSB. Uh, so we, we are something we, we're really trying to get our minds around. Um, the answer isn't to tell people more information and give them more necessarily, unless it can present it in a way that will change behavior at the consumer end of the, the scale. But as Tamar said, when, when what you want is that fridge, it really doesn't matter what you tell them. They want the fridge and they're going to sign anything and accept anything to, to get there. So do disclosures really help? Do they really alert the customer to what may happen? And so much of the regulation that we've got and is coming through and, and future regular is all about more communication, more greater uh, voluminous uh, communication to people. Uh, I'm very skeptical whether it'll have the intended consequence. And then the acid test that I often throw on the table when people describe this stuff to me is, would you recommend such a product to your own mother? Uh, if she bought it to you and said, I've been offered this, should I buy it? What, what would your answer be? If your answer is run a mile, uh, this is a ripoff and it'll never, it'll, we can get much better value in much simpler ways elsewhere. Then, then why, why do these products exist? Open to the floor. Okay. You're earning lots of ten cents there. You're gonna big big check for you in the post at the end. Eh? Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a tough one, there, uh, Neil. So um, I guess context is always one thing that's missing. So I was you know, tongue in cheek thinking maybe the underlying investments were related to an international furniture retailer. In that respect, it's actually spectacular returns. But uh, you know, the answers are quite simple. You know, Maybe it's no and no and no. And the answer, I don't have the answer, but I, I also share your concern, uh, not only for policyholders in terms of you know really reading the disclosures, but I think just as a society as a whole, everywhere, everywhere actuaries are interfacing in the engines of the financial machine, there is massive complexity that's hitting us. Actuaries are making judgment calls on the on the go as they operate. They have to document them and then distill them to thirty or forty thousand feet of height and explain them to decision makers. And if something does go wrong, I, I still have said this before, especially on the non-life side where there's quite a big shift to the SAM regime. I'm quite worried that um somewhere we only need to make one really proper mistake. Um 
accidental oversight, one mistake, and the professional will really feel the brunt of it um, because it's quite getting quite complex. So I also think that regulation is not necessarily the perfect silver bullet for all of it. Um, in this example, in my view, is simple. The policy had never had a chance. And if they just read the disclosures the way you said it, then, you know, you'd be uh, quite silly to pay this unless there's something else that we're not seeing, either a loan or there's a guarantee or they invested in heavy, you know, dubious securities and that was all known. But uh, on the face value, you know, I also don't think these things should go out. I'm not sure. Uh, if in the complexity of the machine that uh, actuaries who want to do good always see that end product on a regular basis. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, where do we think we need to go dig and ask and, mm. and scrub around so that we rather change those in the companies before the media or someone else points it out to us? Mm. Yeah. Which really is the question is what what could happen? What, what, will, what would the world look like in a world where the, the profession was doing something to prevent this. How and where would that would that be? Not sure I've ever met an actor who said I resigned from my employer because I disagreed fundamentally with what they were doing or what they were asking me to do. Has anybody ever come across that? Arthur? Yeah, Rob. Oh, Rob, Rob, sorry. Yeah, Rob's Rob. a good example. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Forgot about him. Okay, any other comments? Or are we all all done on that? I think the case is... One, part of the advice I give young actuarial people coming into our business is to always have that person or entity or something sitting on your shoulder watching what you do when you're taking decisions and when you're doing your work. It's a little devil that sits there watching. That person can see it all, and that's your conscience uh, that is watching everything you do, and your conscience is always watching. So I think that's a sobering thought. I put that up at the Young Members Convention. There was a collective gasp from the people there. They didn't think necessarily yet about the fact that everything they did was going to be under such scrutiny. And then finally, that that's really the necessity for the, the committee that we have, and I, I urge you all, please, to make whatever input you can um, either in, 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 I think the easier end is sort of examples of things that you see that might be going wrong, where, where you think um, the profession should be thinking about that. And, and as I say, it's not dealing with the miscreants or dealing with the bad behavior at the other end. It's preventing it in the first place and how we get the profession to, to change its stance in terms of the input and um, the, the influence that we can have all the way through. And then, then anything that any, any ideas that anybody has in terms of how that advice to the profession could be formulated and, and put out there, the content of an APN, what can we do? Because I think this is a very, very important conversation for us to be having so we can avoid the, the catastrophe or the, the one case or whatever that, that goes wrong one day. And it would be awful as we, if we as a profession, which I've always thought just contains the most amazing bunch of people. Um, I remember very early in my career working in a company that had actuaries from the Faculty of Actuaries and the Institute of Actuaries, because they were separate back in those days, and then the Society of Actuaries of America, and then, in fact, one from Canada. So it was quite a place, you can imagine, a bit of a Tower of Babel. Um, and I'd always been brought up to think um, early in my career in Scotland that the faculty was the best. And and these Institute guys, you know, well, um, and then don't even mention across the across the water what's going on in North America. 
And what I learned, in fact, working with people, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter which professional body you've gone through. There's an incredibly high caliber of people. Uh, they really are marvelous. And uh, everybody I worked with, and they were of, of the highest caliber. And it just seems to me what, you know, that the, the reputation and the name of all of these people, which is all of us here and all our colleagues out there, is kind of on the line. And if we don't get this right, then uh, we could find ourselves as a profession um, on on the downward slope. And that would be a terribly sad state of affairs to reach. So please, anything you can bring to us, any ideas, any thoughts you've got, we really would welcome that. And then I think it just remains to say thank you again very much for coming along. There was an attendance register doing the rounds. Has everybody had an opportunity to sign that? Okay. There's three people out here who haven't seen it yet, so we need to, we need our CPD as well, you know. Um, and then finally, just to thank uh, Tamar and Peter for their input and efforts in putting this stuff together and the other members of the committee. There was a meeting in Cape Town on Tuesday, a similar uh, sessional meeting, which apparently went very well and was well attended as well. Uh, so thank you very much and look forward to further engagement. Thank you.